Uh, welcome to the Bible interpretation class. Um, if I haven't met you before, my name is Russell Balicki and I serve as one of the elders here. Um, Bible interpretation class, we started with kind of what is scripture, and we've been in a series recently going through different genres of scripture, and we are taking a quick break um, for scheduling reasons to talk about resolving hard texts and apparent contradictions, and then we'll pick up next week with uh, looking at apocalyptic literature. Um, before we get started, I, I'm going to pray. We certainly need the Lord's help, and so I'm going to ask for that now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, uh, which is true and inerrant, inspired, Lord, and we can come to it expecting that even when there are things that we find difficult to understand, uh, Lord, that there are answers and that you are true and that your words will prove true. Pray that you would guide our discussion this morning, that you'd be glorified in it, that you would encourage our faith uh, to look to you uh, for truth, Lord, uh, that we would not look to circumstances, we would not look to other things, or rely on our own understanding, but trust in you. For these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So our main idea this morning is that we should approach hard passages of Scripture and apparent contradictions based on the whole counsel of Scripture and sound interpretive principles, humbly and hopefully submitting ourselves to Scripture as the divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God. That's long. We'll unpack it all. You don't need to remember it. Um, we're going we're gonna to approach it in a couple of different kind of movements or sections. First, we're going to talk about just some principles, just sort of some baseline assumptions that are going to be helpful to tee up the discussion. Then we're going to spend the bulk of our time on some questions to talk through that will help uh, interpret when we reach a hard passage or when we reach an apparent contradiction. These are intended as, as aids to help work through different passages. And then... Uh, Lord willing, at the end, we will uh, have a chance to apply some of these principles to a couple different passages. So we'll try to keep it moving relatively quickly so that we can have some time to engage on those. So we'll get started. Point one on your handout. By the way, there are handouts in the back if you didn't get one. Um, point one is uh, scripture is the inspired and errant word of God. Uh, we started the class, I think it was the second class, was, was on uh, what is the Bible, God's true word. It was Dave Sutton taught it. It was an excellent class. I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. I'm not going to try to restate everything that he said, uh, but I do think it's important to start here, so I will summarize it. Um, the Bible is different than any other book that we will read. You read, another, you read other books and you, you look at it, you, you see people saying things that seem to be contradictory. We assume what? They must just disagree, right? They, they must just have different views. They must be emphasizing different things. They must take a different view. Um, we, we see people uh, say things that we don't really understand, and we can, we can very easily just dismiss them as not really knowing what they're talking about. They don't have anything important to tell us. These are not options that are open to us with respect to Scripture, right? That Scripture is God's inspired, inerrant word. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So he's given through his Holy Spirit the Bible over the course of thousands of years, all, divine, are all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit across different cultures, across different authors. Um, they all are, form a harmonious whole. And we take from that this idea of the analogy of scripture, or you may have heard the analogy of faith, but the basic idea is that because scripture is divinely inspired and has ultimately a single author, even though it has multiple human authors, it ultimately has a single author, which is God, that 
it is internally consistent and it's the best interpreter of itself, that we can actually use scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, this is gonna be a really important point as we dive in to these hard passages and apparent contradictions. Second Peter 1 assures us that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the assurance that we have that when we reach hard texts that, that scripture can help to throw light on them. Um, another really important principle is the inerrancy of scripture, which follows from its divine inspiration, that God is true, God has inspired his word, and so his word, which is his revelation of himself to humanity, is true. It's without error or fault in what it covers. And so when we approach, when we approach scripture, we ought to expect that it, it is true and will be proven true. Um, scripture says this of itself. Uh, I won't cover all the passages that I've listed there. You can go and look at those if you want to be encouraged, but Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And so before we dive into to hard texts and, and apparent contradictions, we need to wrestle with a, with a preliminary question, which is, do we believe that scripture is the inerrant word of God? Do we believe that it is divinely inspired? Um, Satan would love to have us flip the analysis and say, well, first we need to look at all these contradictions and, and hard text to figure out if, if I believe this is divinely inspired. Um, but ultimately, what we believe about scripture is an act of faith. Um, it certainly can prove, it, prove itself, don't get me wrong, there's, there's assurances. Um, scripture explains the world in a way that I think is unique among anything else. There's prophecies that are fulfilled. Um, it, is, it proves itself to be inerrant. So all of these things are true, but ultimately, um, <clears throat> what we think of God's word is, is an act of faith. And so as we approach these things, we need to start from that baseline of God's word is true because it will allow us to press through some of these hard texts and con apparent contradictions to see that there is an answer and that God's actually structured his word this way on purpose. And we'll, we'll talk about that next. Um, so God's word is, is inspired and, and inerrant, but some passages of scripture are harder to understand than others, uh, especially when they seem to contradict others. Uh, this is actually, we see this in scripture. So uh, someone could read uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16, or sorry, yeah, verses 16 through 18. 2 Peter 3, 16 through 18. Thank you. So this is Peter writing of Paul's letters. He says, there, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and there are things in them that are hard to understand that people then twist to their own destruction. And he encourages his readers to take care of that. They're not, car they're not carried away with these lawless people and lose their own stability. 
there's another passage in John. Uh, you should read the whole thing just to see how it develops. It's really, really interesting. But in John chapter 6, um, Jesus is, is interacting with people. He gets to the point where he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And in verse 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, that this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then verses 66 through 68 say that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So there's, we see in both of these passages that there's differing responses to differing types of words, that some of these passages are hard to understand and, and people actually fall away because of them. I want to put to the, to the group, why might God have done this? He inspired his scripture. Why did he do it this way? It invites us to study it all the more. That's great, yeah. It engages our minds, yep. Um, something like Christians walk by faith, not by sight. Mm -hmm. And if like, it was something that was simple and understandable, it would be easy to lose ourselves, like, mm -hmm. figure out like, our own rationality that understood it. Yeah. As opposed to remembering that like, God is like, above us, yep. infinitely beyond our comprehension and understanding. Yeah. Yeah, it requires a response of faith. Um, we've, we've even seen that in these two passages, right? That, that when these, these hard passages came out, people responded in different ways. Some, some fell away and some said, we believe you have the words of eternal life. Some, some twist to their own destruction and some will take care that they're not carried away with the error of lawless people. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. It, it invites us and really requires us to, to continue to walk by faith. Good. Um, anything else? Yeah. Talks about some of the parables as you know, some of they're intended to illumine some truths to some people, but they are intended to cover some truths for other people mm -hmm. in their hearts. So yep. it seems like maybe parts of the other parts of the scripture are doing that as well. Yeah, yeah, really good point. Yep. Yep. It also seems like, um, at least some of the time, maybe the problem that we tend to look at this and say, oh, that seems contradictory, and that's a problem for the Bible. Maybe it's our problem mm -hmm. that. Some of the things that are hard to understand, mm -hmm. maybe because we are limited and finite. Yeah. Um, and so it's user error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good way of putting it. User error. Yeah, the, this is God is a big God. He has a lot to communicate, and and it seems that He's seen in His divine wisdom that these hard passages and these apparent contradictions are are part of the best way to communicate that. Um, and we, we submit ourselves to scripture as God's word. And that's why we, it's important that we start with the premise that it is God's word and it is inerrant so that we can then put ourselves in that posture of learning from it rather than critiquing it. Good. Um, it also compels us to hope, I think, that, that even if we don't, even if we're not able to crack it, that we looking, we're looking forward to the day that God will reveal this, that, that um, he, will, he will show himself to be true. 
Great, thank you. So we're going to dive in now on some questions to ask when we're interpreting uh, hard passages. So I've got this listed first as hard passages, and then point four on the handout is a couple additional points for apparent contradictions. Uh, so uh, we're just going to walk through these. There's going to be some examples that we'll use to kind of help explain what we're talking about. I'm not going to try to get really down deep into all of these. There's way too many of them for that to be profitable for this class, but happy to talk offline if, if helpful. Um, the first question we need to ask is, what about the text is hard? Uh, is it that we're having trouble understanding it? It's an interpretation issue. Or is it we're having trouble believing or applying it, which is a different issue, right? Um, so some, some examples that I would put forward here are the story of Jonah, where Jonah's in the belly of a whale for three days, apparently underwater. As a natural matter, that seems impossible, right? And so we might struggle to believe that. Um, but scripture says that this is a historic event that happened. Um, another example might be the command to forgive one another. If someone has really hurt us, we might be tempted to say, this is a hard text. Um, but it's actually not hard to understand. It's hard to apply and to put into practice, right? Um, the resurrection of Jesus can be a hard thing to accept. People don't just rise from the dead. Uh, that can be a hard text in that way. Um, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That can be a hard text to accept when we have things that are comfortable. So these are hard, but they're not hard in the way that this class is about. These are hard to maybe accept and to put into practice, but they're not difficult to understand. They're, they're straightforward. And the call for the Christian is to, is to accept and to apply, to trust that God is bigger than our circumstances in, in sustaining Jonah in the whale. He created the world. He can certainly sustain Jonah in the whale. Um, he, he is the author of life. He can raise Jesus from the dead. Uh, he's extended forgiveness. We can extend forgiveness. So we, we, all of these things, we're compelled as Christians to put them into practice and to accept and to believe them, right? That's not the type of, of difficulty we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be focused on biblical texts that are difficult to understand or to reconcile with others. And the first question that we ought to ask after that, after that preliminary question of whether we're kind of in the, whether we just need to accept and apply it or whether we're, we need to look deeper is, how do other passages of scripture inform this one? I think this is probably far and away like the most important question we can ask. Um, and there's a couple different areas to look. Uh, one would be surrounding context. So you have a passage. We don't look at that passage in isolation. We look at it in the context of the, the book that it's in, in the paragraph, everything else that surrounds it. So an example of this uh, is Proverbs 5.15, which says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Uh, out of context, we might think that means we need to all go dig a, a well in our backyard, right? And just not share water with each other. Uh, as it turns out, as you read the rest of that passage, that's not what it's talking about at all. It's talking about um, husbands enjoying and being faithful to their own wives, uh, that, that the waters are a metaphor for, for, the for their wives. It's an allegory. Um, Matthew eighteen nineteen says, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. 
well, that sounds like a fun promise, right? Just like <laughs> join up with two people and we can get whatever we want. No, that's not what this is talking about. In context, we see this is actually coming in the context of church discipline. This is Matthew 18. It's right after talking about the process for church discipline. And so Jesus is saying, it, if two of you agree, if the church is in agreement that this is, he's act, essentially Jesus is deputizing the church to act on his behalf for the kingdom. So he's, it's a very different read when you put it in context than when you take it out of context. Um, there's others, the transfiguration, he, he says there's people who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In context seems to be referring to the transfiguration, which is right after that and not the ultimate coming of the kingdom of God. Um, but the point is we want to look at the surrounding context to understand what, what it's talking about when we see a hard text. Um, we can also look for direct references. Sometimes scripture directly interprets scripture and even tells us that that's what it's doing. Um, in, in Hebrews 11, uh, 17 through 19, uh, this is a commentary on Abraham's faith when he offered up his son Isaac. It says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So remember God, one of the hard, really hard passages of the Bible is God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, the one through whom the promise was to be kept, right? The, his son whom he loved. Um, there's not a ton of commentary that we get about how Abraham processed that, other than that he obeyed and that he said, we're going to come back and, and after we're done worshiping, uh, which by itself is an incredible statement. Hebrews sheds some more light on it and tells us that Abraham's faith was so great, he considered that God was e able even to raise Isaac from the dead, and so he was going to go through an obedience. It's a helpful commentary directly interpreting Genesis 22. Um, Here's a, here's a familiar one. Um, in Isaiah 7:14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if we just came across that without any context, we might not know what it's talking about. What is it talking about? Say it out loud. Jesus. Jesus. Yes, it's always the right answer. Yes. Um, it's talking about the birth of Christ, right? The virgin, the virgin birth, which literally was fulfilled. Uh, in Matthew 1, 22 through 23, he, uh, Matthew applies that passage directly to Christ's birth. And so this is something we'll often read around Christmas time, uh, and it's directly interpreting Old Testament scripture. Uh, this can work in, in the other direction, too. The Old Testament can also appear in the New Testament. Uh, so one of, who, who knows, Jesus' favorite title for himself, at least in the Gospel of Luke, is what? Son of Man, yep. Uh, that is a reference directly to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where one like a son of man has come and given authority for an everlasting kingdom. It's a messianic title. So Jesus isn't just talking about his, his manhood when he talks about being the son of man. He's, in, he's invoking this title from Daniel chapter 7, which we can then learn about by reading that passage. Uh, same thing with the New Covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, describe what that New Covenant is, that uh, God will write his law in the hearts of, of people, um, that he's going to create for himself a new people. So it works both directions. Frequently, it's the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament, but it's not always the case. I'm just going to pause there because I've been talking for a while. Are there any questions, comments so far? Obviously, we're right in the middle, so we can keep going. But said a lot. So. Yes? I was going to ask, do you speak like 
Oh, yeah. Yep. Will do. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, good. Anything else? All right. Um, so another thing we, we ought to look for when we're interpreting a hard text is clear teachings and doctrines. Um, I don't know if this is an official term, but in my mind, I call, it, I'll call, I call these anchor texts. These are like the ones that, that solidify you, that you can, you, know, you can start from here and then help use these to help interpret other scriptures. Um, so one example of this type of anchor text is uh, Romans 3, 23 through 25. Can someone read that? And can someone read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? There's two, two verses listed there under point three. And then it, actually, if someone can grab 1 Corinthians 15, 29, too. Who's got Romans? Great, thank you. And then who's got Ephesians? Two eight. Thank you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Great, thank you. Um, and then who's got first Corinthians fifteen twenty nine? Is that Great, thank you. So the first two passages are examples of what I'll call anchor text. These are really clear descriptions of how we're saved. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ, who is the propitiation for our sin. It is not based on works. Um, texts like that can be really helpful in understanding texts like the one Zach just read about why are people baptized for the dead. Is, is Paul saying that you can get baptized on behalf of an unbeliever who's already died and that that person can be saved? But we can look at these texts and say, no, these anchor texts tell us that's not how, that's not how this works. It's by grace through faith in Christ. Um, certainly other, other passages about baptism and, and other texts could be brought to bear as well. Um, but just to illustrate the point, this is, this is, this is how clearer texts can help to, to understand less clear texts. Uh, for what it's worth on 1 Corinthians, I, I think what Paul is doing is, is his focus there is really on, on showing that the resurrection is, is true. And so he's, he's, he's using an argument to say, well, you guys, you guys are, some, or some of you are being baptized on behalf of the dead. You know, what are you doing if you don't, if that's not, if the, if the resurrection isn't really valid? So it's an argument. He's not necessarily endorsing that practice, but it's an argument that, um, that he's using to help show that the resurrection is true. Uh, there, there are uh, other explanations of that passage as well that that's, one that I'll offer for free. Again, I'm not going to get too, de too deep into the details here, but happy to talk later. Um, another helpful example here, can someone read James chapter 1, verses 12 through 14? Say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, but he 
evil and himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Great, thank you. So the clear teaching of, of that passage is that God does not tempt people. He is not the tempter. And so that helps to shed light on passages like um, Exodus 9.12, where it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or 1 Samuel 16.14, where it talks about a harmful spirit being sent to Paul, uh, or to Saul, I mean, um, or 1 Kings 22, where uh, Micaiah tells Ahab about this kind of divine counsel of, of how they're going to essentially lead him to be killed in battle. That, that passage is actually really helpful because they, there's this, God seems to confer with the angel. Someone says, hey, how about we're go, I'll go um, mislead him. They, they have these prophets that all say, yes, you should go into battle. You're going to totally win. And then Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judea, says, isn't there anyone who is a prophet of God? Which is kind of interesting because there's 400 of them that just came forward. And he says, well, there's Micaiah, but I hate him. It's literally like what it says, because <laughs> um, he never says good things about me. Um, but they call him, and so Micaiah starts by sarcastically saying, yeah, go, you know, you'll, you'll do well. And then uh, King Ahab kind of sees through it, and then he, he reveals this, this scene in heaven where he says you're going to die in battle, this, that you've been misled by these other prophets to, to go into battle. So he has, a, he has the entire thing set before him, and he goes into battle. He tries to disguise himself, uh, and an arrow that's you know, shot at, quote, random, hits him and kills him, just as God predicted. Um, so it's a really interesting case study in, in what James is talking about, that God did not tempt him. In fact, God warned him. Um, but at the same time, God divinely ordained for this to happen and used these... these um, prophets that spoke falsely to, to lead him into battle and to ultimately accomplish his purpose. So the, the thing that we can take away from James, though, is that God, while he permits temptation, he is not the tempter. He does not tempt. And we also learn from James that testing has a purpose, that it, that it actually helps to refine us and, and can prove our faith if we, uh, by his grace, respond well. So it's, it's another one of those anchor texts that helps to interpret other texts that can be confusing. We could, we could talk about Pharaoh and Saul another time. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into those, but it just, it helps to ground us as we look at those passages. Um, that was a lot. Thoughts, questions, comments? All right. Another way that scripture can inform scripture is through different perspectives on the same events. Uh, we see this especially in the Gospels. Um, one example that we have is like, it, you have a diamond, has all these different facets, you, you hold it up in the light, you kind of turn it different ways, you see different aspects of it, it reflects and, and shows its true beauty. Um, I think the Gospels can do that. So the feeding of the 5,000, for example, um, Matthew and Mark mentioned that, uh, that Jesus had compassion on the crowds, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke and John mentioned that the way that they got the food to feed the 5,000 was uh, five loaves and two fish. And John specifically points out that it's a boy who offered this to the disciples. Um, all four of them mentioned that, that there were 12 basketfuls of, of bread that they collected left over. Um, Matthew helps, helpfully notes that that 5,000 does not include women and children. So it may have been, you know, 10,000, maybe way more. Um, 
And John notes that the people wanted to make him king by force after this, that he performed this miracle and people responded with kind of a, a, an amazement that was not the type of, of kingdom that Jesus was seeking. So he actually withdraws then. Um, all four gospels speak to this and all four of them help us see different aspects of it. Um, Another one is the resurrection. Uh, Matthew talks of an earthquake and, the, and an angel rolling away the stone. Um, Mark talks about the size of the stone. Luke reports that there were two angels there. John reports an encounter with Mary Magdalene when she kind of uh, gets to interact with Jesus and confuses him for the gardener. Um, another example of, of, you know, this is a significant, significant event, the resurrection. How did this all come together? The, the gospels all shed light on it. You can see the same thing in the Lord's Supper. Um, you can see the same thing in the criminals who are uh, crucified with Jesus. That uh, Some of the Gospels just note that they reviled him, while, uh, which, which emphasizes how alone Jesus was, while Luke shows us that one of them came to repentance and actually uh, saw Jesus for who he is. And that's where Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It has that promise. So these are differing perspectives on the same events that help to illuminate them for us. Another thing we can look for is types, shadows, and illusions. Um, so an example of this would be an appreciation and understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system helps us to understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice and helps us to put in place why we, why we need a sacrifice, why someone needs to, uh, so a, a perfect sacrifice needs to atone for our sins. Um, an understanding of the Passover helps us to see, um, again, the the need for and the significance of Christ's sacrifice. Remember the Passover was the first one was celebrated right as the, as the Israelites were about to be freed from bondage in Egypt. This, this was the act that would allow them to go. Um, when we see that Christ's sacrifice is, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, when we see it in that context, it helps to give us a fuller understanding of, of what that means and, and what Jesus was doing on the cross. Um, other examples would be Manna, God, God provided bread for the Israelites, and Jesus says of himself that he's the bread of life, the greater bread, essentially. Um, and in Revelation, we asked, when, when Garrett went through it, we often asked, where is this in the Old Testament? So much symbolism in the Old Testament that then informs uh, what's, what's being talked about in Revelation. I'm not even going to try to cover that. That's going to be next class. Cody's going to cover that next week. Um, but it's another example of that. Uh, and then another thing we can look for is recurring themes and images. So yeast often in scripture is associated with, with sin, not always, but often is associated with sin. And so that can help to give us to, to understand a passage rightly. Um, Israel is often compared to a vine that is supposed to be fruitful. Um, and so when we see that imagery, we can know that, that um, the author probably had that in mind as, as he's drawing on that image. So. These are, these are all just, again, ways that scripture can inform uh, other scriptures. So that when we encounter a difficult text, we're not sure what it means, we can look to other passages of scripture to throw light on it. Um, any questions, comments on that? Yeah. Just uh, recurring throughout what you were just talking about, it seems like it keeps coming back. You have to, have to know a lot of scripture or have a good grounding in to make sense of any particular problem passages. I'm wondering if you could just um, talk a little bit about what 
what should we be doing to just sort of make sure we don't end up obsessing? Yeah. Because I certainly know people who like sometimes meet someone into they are off to something that seems a little weird, mm -hmm. but they love the scriptures. Yep. And they're really into something particular. How do you keep from obsessing over something and keep the big picture? And yep. Yeah, really, really good question. How do we how do we prevent ourselves from obsessing about like the minutia? I, th I think is, is part of your question. Um, this is why I wanted to start with second with that passage in Second Peter. He talks about um, the ignorant. There's some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And then he warns his readers, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So that's part one is to do, I, I read that to say do good interpretation, basically. And then part two is, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So I think I, I interpret that as applied here to mean there, it's okay not to get bogged down in this stuff. Like there are answers and and we can search and seek to understand, but w the primary call is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are clear passages of scripture that allow us to do that. And so we don't need to obsess and we ought not obsess. And, and um, we ought to, we'll talk about, you know, how to do this well even so that we're not leading ourselves down the path of, of twisting, um, twisting scripture. But yeah, we ought to, uh, seek out the clear passages and grow in those and meditate on those. That's where we ought to spend our time uh, as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of th the Lord Jesus. Does that hit your question? Would you add anything? Cool. Thank you. It's a good question. Sorry. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Amen. And that goes to actually a point that we'll talk about later, but I think is appropriate to mention now that it's okay to just reach a tentative conclusion and then trust the Lord, or not even reach a tentative conclusion and just trust the Lord. Um, that there are things, those passages there in, in Psalm 131, that there, there are things that are just too, too high for us. We don't need to occupy ourselves with them. Um, it's okay to let God be God, to let us be men and women, and to submit ourselves to his word as best as we're able to. So really good. Thank you. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through mostly these next um, questions. I'm not going to get too deep into examples, um, but these are other questions that can help to elucidate a, a hard passage. One is, what is the historical context of the passage and its location in salvation history? Are we in the Old Testament? Are we in the New Testament? what was happening at the time, that can often help to understand, help us to understand why something's being emphasized or why something's being phrased the way that it is. Um, one very quick example, Romans 13, when we're called to submit to the government, it helps to know that Paul was under Nero at the time and 
that the Christians were being persecuted. And so the call to submit to the government has some real teeth in it. it Garrett talked about the you know, nuances to that, and the point is not to get into that here, but just to, it helps to know that as we read that, where we might be tempted to kind of dismiss it. So, um, is the passage meant to be taken literally? Can someone read, we have to do this one, can someone read Matthew 5, 29 through 30? While we're doing that, one question is, what's the genre of literature? So poetry is going to be interpreted differently than, than narrative, which is going to be in interpreted differently than apocalyptic literature. And so not all of those are meant to be taken literally. Um, we, it's okay to treat poetry as poetry, to treat metaphor as metaphor, and to allow that to, to just be. So, um, and then Matthew 20, 5, 29 through 30 gives another example of this. Yep, thank you. Great, thank you. So Jesus is, is teaching a true, a, a true point here that it is, it is better to be right with the Lord and to remove temptations to sin and to do whatever is necessary to facilitate that uh, than, to, than to enjoy something that we, that we like um, and to give in to that. Um, that said, if, if every one of us applied that passage, we would all be armless and blind. Like, it just is true. <laughs> he's, not, he's not intending for this to be taken literally as a call to self-mutilation. He is using hyperbole here to communicate a very real point, which is that ultimately, no matter how difficult it is to remove, to do things to remove temptations to sin, it is worth it because we want to be right with the Lord. So this is an example of hyperbole that's not meant to be taken literally. Um, you can also see there's sometimes where people just have different purposes. So Matthew 13, 32, Jesus refers to the mustard seed as the smallest of all seeds. His point is not like a botany lesson. His point is something that starts really, really small and actually is the smallest, I think, in the garden that they had, would grow into a large plant just as the kingdom of God would start small and grow. Um, it's, it's not meant to be a proof about there's no seed in the entire world that's smaller than a mustard seed. And it would be wrong to read it that way. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a vicious quote that I saw that holding Jesus responsible for something he had no intention of teaching or implying shows the inability of the accuser to understand language, not a failure of Jesus or the gospel writers. So, vicious. Um, all right. What is the author's point? So, um, this goes to a similar thing that the, author, the, the authors of scripture are not always going for scientific precision. And so if we're looking for scientific precision in a passage that's not meant to provide it, um, we're, not, we're, we're holding the scripture to a standard it's not seeking to meet. That's not, that's not to say that scripture is lower, it's to say that we're, we're reading something in and approaching it in a way that's not actually how we should be. Um, example, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to get into examples just for the sake of time. Um, yeah, you can... You can read some of those um, on your own. Um, yeah, I'm just going to keep moving here. 
Um, are there cultural considerations to account for? James Nelson taught last week, gave some helpful instruction on this, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but there are sometimes um, calls in scripture that uh, we implement differently today in light of cultural. One, one example he gave was the holy kiss, which I think is a really good one, that we're called to greet each other, we're called to show warm affection to one another. One another. Um, we are not necessarily called to give that holy kiss in the same way they did at that time. Um, some cultures probably do it in the United States. If that's your thing, you know, you go for it. <laughs> but um, it's, not, it's not, yeah, it's, it's a timeless principle that we apply differently in today's culture. Um, a couple other things to note. Are there translation choices to note? So one example of this is just if you're in interpreting the Genesis creation account, um, how you, how, whether and how you render the word, I forget what the Hebrew word is, but the one that's can either be earth or land can sometimes have an interpretive difference. Um, and so this is an example where diving into the original language and understanding uh, is helpful. And then lastly, and this is rare, but it is a question to know is, are there transcription issues? Um, I've listed a couple that, at least in the ESV that I was looking at, there's a footnote, and you can look at those. Um, and there's, it's interesting that they're, they're sort of suggesting, we think that maybe there was, a, there was an error here in transcription. So remember, inerrancy technically applies to the original manuscripts, not necessarily to the copies, although we can say with very, very, very high degree of confidence what the originals likely said, and, and it doesn't undermine the claim to inerrancy for scripture. It doesn't undermine anything of, of significance. But as, as an example, just so you know what I'm talking about, First um, Samuel 13.1 may be an example of this, where if you literally read the Hebrew, it says, Saul was one year old when he became king, and he reigned two years over Israel. Now, ESV has translated that a little bit differently, but that's the literal Hebrew reading. Um, it may be that that we have a transcription that the numbers were lost somewhere along the way. We don't. I, there's other, you know, like I said, ESV has translated it differently to kind of be more about when when things took place, which which very well may be a permissible reading. But I flagged this because there's a note there in the Bible that this this actually literally is read that way, and we know that he was not one year old when he was. Um, made king because uh, elsewhere we, it says that he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. So he was not a baby <laughs> when he was made king. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, that doesn't undermine the doctrine of inerrancy. The last point goes to a point that um, Lyle raised, which what, what turns on this issue? This can help us avoid getting swept away. If, if this is a minor thing, don't, don't obsess about it. Just let it go and trust that the Lord will reveal it. Um, I'm going to keep going through the, through the questions that are more specific to apparent contradictions, um, and then I'll, I'll pause, and then we can see what we have time to kind of hit together as a, as a class at the end. Um, so when we're dealing with apparent contradictions, this is two texts that seem to go against each other. All of those same principles still apply. We're dealing with two texts now instead of one, but all of the same ones still apply. And there are a couple that are more specific to this context that are helpful to think through. The first is whether the apparent contradiction is substantive or artificial. So as an example of that, Mark, or Matthew 12.30 says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Mark 9.40 says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Well, which is it, Jesus? 
Well, he's talking in completely different contexts, and it's, not, it's actually not a contradiction at all. In one sense, in the first, the Pharisees are attributing his work to uh, the devil, and he's saying, you need, to, you need to choose. You're either going to embrace who I am, or you're not, you're against me. So you're either with me or against me, is kind of how we, or whoever's not with me is against me. In the other context, the disciples are trying to stop someone who's uh, casting out demons in his name, and, he's, and he, they say, we tried to stop him. And he says, no, 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 no. The one who is not against us is for us. He, he's, this man was, was acting in Christ's name. And so it's a very different context. There's no contradiction there. Um, you can do a similar thing with uh, the command in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, not to judge. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but it's a similar type of thing. It's an artificial distinction. Um, Similar type of thing with Luke 14, 26, where it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's no contradiction there in the command to honor our father and mother. This is, again, hyperbole. It's talking about our relative, we love Christ above any familial connections. And so there's, it's it's an artificial contradiction. It's not a real one. Ultimately, at some level, all of these are kind of artificial contradictions because, um, again, Scripture is, is a unified whole, even though it's diverse. So, so but these, are, these are ones where it's like you're just kind of like misinterpreting. There's nothing there. Um, for some of these, they'll touch on, on some of those anchor texts that we talked about before. There's going to be clear teachings or doctrines that speak into the apparent contradiction and help us to resolve it. One of these is that God does not change his mind and is immutable. Um, that helps us to understand passages where it seems that God is changing his mind, where it talks about God relenting, or where it talks about God being grieved that something has happened. We learn from, from those clearer teachings that what's going on is that God is unchanging, he's immutable, but he's res- scripture writers are showing how he's responding to the mutable and, and sinful people. Um, and giving us uh, anthropomorphic language. In other words, it, it kind of puts it into terms we can understand how God is, is reacting to that. Um, which, by the way, just shows our actions matter and that our sin grieves God and that it makes a difference. So it, that, those are helpful passages for us to hear. Um, the differences may be explainable by uh, different purposes. So in Genesis fifteen thirteen, it talks about um, Abraham's descendants being in Egypt for 400 years. In Exodus 12:40, it talks about 430, which is right. Uh, I think 430 is the more exact number. 400 is a round number. They're not inten- the first one wasn't intended to be specific. It was intended to be a round number. Um, there's other situations like that where, it, for example, in the Gospels, they may arrange things thematically or, or by substance rather than chronologically. And that's okay. That's their that's what the, the custom was at that time. It's, there's no contradiction that something happens at one point in one gospel and at a different point in a different gospel. Um, whether cultural practices explain the apparent contradiction, one of these is, is calculating time. So for example, in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, uh, the sign, he's talking about his resurrection, he says three days and three nights is what the timeline will be for the resurrection. Elsewhere in Matthew, he says, uh, on the third day he'll rise. Um, yeah, first century Jews did not think about time the same way that we do. So to say that he was going to be in the grave for th- 
three days and three nights is perfectly consistent with the timing of going in on Friday night and coming out on Sunday morning. There's three days, and that they would have accepted that as a totally valid uh, way of thinking. It also seems that he's quoting Jonah in that first passage, so it, it, it's a specific turn of phrase there. Um, I can think, I mean, we do the same thing. So like, if you ask me how long is two days, if, if it was a math test, I'd say 40, 48 hours. If the question, if you told me that a phone had a two-day battery life, though, I would expect that meant I could unplug it this morning and it would last until I went to bed tomorrow, but not necessarily that it would last the entire 48 hours. That's a two-day battery life. Um, by contrast, if a court told me this morning that I needed to turn something in in two days, I would interpret that to mean that I had until midnight Tuesday night. So that's longer than 48 hours, but that's actually how the filing deadlines work. So, there's, so you can have a completely different range of what two days means, even in our own language. Um, yeah, you think about similar things with Old Testament chronologies about years. And you know, we have calendar years. We have academic years, which are different than calendar years. We have fiscal years, which are different than all three of those. Um, you could say last year, referring to an academic year, and actually make it all the way back into 2021, um, depending on where you are in the school cycle. So it's, you know, these are, we have the same types of things in our day. So I just say it to say this isn't just people making excuses for scripture. It's that there's real cultural and contextual practices that are perfectly accurate to say. Um, and it, but if you come up with the wrong mindset, you'll, you'll get confused. Um, similar thing with the Passover and the crucifixion, how that, how that timing worked out. Um, it's similar to if you said like you did something at Christmas. Does that mean you did it on Christmas Day or does that mean you did it at like Christmas vacation? You, it's a similar type of, of usage. Um, that's an oversimplification, but for the sake of time, it's going to suffice. So um, then you can have multiple names for the same person or place. That's, that's also true today. One of our pastors, we call him primarily by his middle name. I'll let you figure that one out, but it's true. Um, uh, and then if you like, just think about like, like, even if you describe where you live, depending on who you're talking to and why you're talking to them, you might say DC, you might say Alexandria, you might say Groveton, you might say Fairfax County, all of them are the same area, but they're, it's just, you know, different names for the same thing. Okay, I'm going to briefly stop there. Any questions about those, these are, oh, sorry, one more thing. If non-biblical sources are involved, if the alleged contradiction doesn't actually have to do with scripture, but has to do with scripture and something else, one question to ask yourself is how sure are you that this something else is actually accurate? Um, if this has to do with things about like creation, um, things that, that are based, like a lot of scientific work is, is inferences, is guesses, and it's being revised. Like, I, like even recently, there's this whole kerfuffle over the age of the universe in scientific circles because the, the James Webb telescope has found something that's not supposed to exist. So I, there, scientific knowledge is certainly not certain. Um, God's word is true and will prove true. Um, and so I, that's not to, to throw a spurt. Like scientific, God's given us good tools to learn about his creation. We should use them, certainly. I'm not trying to cast aspersions on it, but we should be really reluctant to say that there's a contradiction when it's actually just scripture versus something that is, is less certain than scripture. Um, we also should, we should not say there's a contradiction if there's just an absence of evidence for something that scripture says is true. Presumably, God will show that to be true, um, even if we don't have external evidence to support it. That's not a contradiction. It's just scripture standing on itself. So, okay, any questions, comments on that?
Yeah. So, um, so let's say you've gone through this process, mm -hmm. right? And I'm, I guess I'm thinking a little bit of your next point, like there's a lot of embedded community, and you're just a different place than somebody else who wants the same set of packages with the same text. Mm -hmm. It's not just an issue you can ignore, it's got real world kind of consequences. Thoughts just on like how you do that kind of stuff and interpretation, like the community is such a believer that you're going to have different consciences. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I, think, I think the first thing to recognize is that none of this is true as to what I would call a primary issue. The things that make you a Christian, the things that, that, are, that we are called to do, they're not implicated by these hard texts and contradictions, that we have really clear scripture there. And so as, as a community and as Christians, we ought to be able to agree on those or to work toward you know, a relative agreement. Maybe there's like slightly different you know, ways of applying it, but, but to some sort of core agreement. On secondary or tertiary or whatever the next level is issues, um, you know, I mean, I think we can do that graciously and, and sharpen each other. I've had good conversations about, like, the nuances of the Trinity with Ben Robin, who's way smarter than me, and, like, tentatively, like, I don't know how we, how, if I fully agree, but, like, we've both sharpened each other, I think, asking questions. So it's, it's I think we can we can do a lot together if we have a spirit of charity and, and truly seeking truth as opposed to just debating. But, um, but yeah, we do want to be guided, though. We don't want to do it alone. Um, find a good commentary. There are bad commentaries. So like, be aware there are bad commentaries that just adopt a hostile posture to scripture. And, and if anything, like try to blow purported inconsistencies out of proportion rather than help to, sh to show the truth of God's word. So like, find a good commentary that's, that is committed to the inerrancy of God's word that helps you to resolve it. And then in community, with elders, with other members, like, then that's when, you t that's when you kind of circle up, say, okay, well, this is what this commentary says, or this church father says, this is what this person says, how do we reconcile that? And I, I trust it'll be a profitable exercise. So does that speak to your question? Best I've got. So, yeah. um, but then ultimately be willing, like, like I said, to reach a tentative conclusion and then just to submit it to the Lord. We don't need to know the final answer. Um, yeah, Psalm 131.1 says, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And we need to be okay with that posture. There might be multiple potential correct answers to something, and we can lean one way. We ought not be dogmatic about something that we can't uh, say with certainty. Um, and we just trust that the, one day the Lord will make that clear. Um, looks like we are at times. So we won't be able to do much. I, the one... It's too encouraging not to do it. So number four on the application... There's, this is a purported inconsistency. I, just, I think this is the type of, like, if you do the hard work of interpretation, it rewards you. And I think this is a good example of it. So I, if, if you have time to hang out for a bit, let's do number four, which is Luke 21, 16 versus Luke 21, 18. Luke 21, 16 says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Then, in the same breath, he says, But not a hair of your head will perish. Inconsistency, right? Scripture is not inerrant. It's done. No, that's not right. What? How do we resolve this? Feel free to open. It might be helpful to actually open to Luke 21. 
put into practice some of the methods that we've talked about. Yes, Zach? I'll just say one thing briefly. It's that when you see an author write some two things that seem to be contradictions right next to each other, the best first thing to do is to assume that the author didn't ignore that yep. and wasn't just foolish in writing random things, but actually intentionally wrote those two things together. So yep. when they appear right next to each other, the best thing to do is to say, why did the author write those two things next to each other that seem to contradict each other? There's probably a reason. Yep. There is a reason. Yes. Amen. Good. What are, what are, um, and so what are, what are some things that help to shed light on that reason? Like as we kind of press through the initial apparent contradiction, what are some things that shed light on it? The next verses. The next verses? Verse yeah. So how so? Well, like verse 19 says, by your danger lives. So it's mm-hmm. talking more than just about the physical death that happens as a result of persecution. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, so, so look at the context. He's talking about something that's more than, than just physical life. Good. Yeah. Talk about Jesus' second coming. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Yep, so that that implicates some of these other clear teachings about Christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead, um, the final judgment. Yeah, good. Anything else? Yeah. I was just thinking about John 3.16 where it says, you know, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. Yeah. So it's clearly talking about more than just death. Yep. We will die, but we won't yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yep. And that's that's so encouraging. Like it's the same word kind of used in a related context that helps to shed light on this passage, and and just think about the glory of this truth that we can be delivered up, we can be put to death for the sake of the gospel, and yet not a hair of our head will perish. But God will be faithful to raise us on that last day, and so what seems to be uh, you know, on its face, a contradiction is actually one of the most glorious truths and points up the fact that this life is not all there is and we have something better to look forward to. Um, and so it's just one example of how, of how God uses difficult texts to, to actually show something much weightier than, than uh, what maybe a direct statement would have. So, good. All right, there's other, there's other stuff we could say. For the sake of time, we won't be able to... Um, I, did, I did think of the Romans doxology, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That, that is uh, something we can take comfort in, that God is higher than us. Um, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, your word and for the chance to study it. I do pray that we would press through um, apparent contradictions and hard texts and that you would reveal it to us and, and produce good fruit in our lives through them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.